0: We're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 6, um, verses 1 through 12. We're going to look at all of chapter 6 today. Um, And I'm going to read it for us. Uh, So if you're looking, if you're not, um, it'll be on the screen behind me. But this is Ecclesiastes 6, starting in verse 1. It says this, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor— So that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than heat. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Let's pray. Father, God, as we approach this text, um, God, I pray that you would give us humble hearts. Um, God, that your sheep know the sound of your voice. Um, So, God, I pray that you would speak. God, you wrote this word. Um, You inspired it by your spirit. Um, God, it is your voice to us. Um, So, God, I pray um, that anything that I contribute that is not in line with your voice, um, God, that you would remove. Um, But, Father, that you would lead us and guide us and direct us, that you would further your kingdom, God, that you would advance your cause. And, Father, we would come behold the wondrous mystery um, that Christ would die for sinners, that the perfect Son of Man without a stain or trace of sin would die in our place. God, not just to forgive us, but, God, to make us holy and righteous and give us lasting joy in knowing you. So, Father, I pray that if anyone in here this morning does not know you as their Savior and Lord and their salvation from their sin, God, I pray today that they would find the joy of knowing you. God, the good news is they don't have to, to earn it. They don't have to complete some steps to deserve it. God it is a free gift of your grace offered right now for anyone who would see you as their Savior and Lord and repent and believe in Jesus Christ. God, thank you for that gift. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to cover chapter six today, and as you probably picked up on while we were reading, um, it's heavy. And uh, We're going to talk about it today, and I want to tell you essentially what Solomon's goal is from the get-go so that you can see how all of this fits um, with what we've been talking about. And I've spent the first couple minutes of each week kind of recapping the pattern that we've seen Solomon give us all throughout the book. Some of you, it's going to be a little redundant to you, but it's important for us to see it, especially this week. Because Solomon is going to kind of deviate from the pattern. He's not just going to pick the next thing under the sun. Um, He's going to give us a warning. And uh, we need this warning. We're about, uh, after today, we'll be halfway through this book. Um, There's 12 chapters in Ecclesiastes. And Solomon kind of parks to give us a warning based on all that he's told us. And if you remember Solomon's conclusion at the very end of the book, the last two verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, his conclusion is fear the Lord. It's essentially, don't put your hope in anything under the sun. The phrase under the sun is kind of what we branded this series off of, um, but it's the phrase that's repeated about 40 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's Solomon's focus, is can you find lasting meaning? Can you find lasting joy? Can you find rest and soul satisfaction with things here under the sun, things here on earth? And Solomon's been evaluating everything, And he already, we've already kind of looked at his conclusion, and it's fear the Lord. You won't find lasting peace and rest and joy under the sun. You won't find it in your job. You won't find it in success. You won't find it in more stuff in the garage. You will not find lasting joy here under the sun. He says, look beyond the sun. Fear the Lord, and you'll find lasting joy there. But what Solomon's done is he's essentially taken us through a survey of planet Earth of all that the earth has to offer, the best of what the earth has to offer. And as king of Israel, he had access to the best that the world had to offer in his day. He had all of the wealth, all of the riches, all of the money, all of the wives, all of the concubines, all of the concerts, all of the pleasures, all of the wisdom from the Lord that you could ever want. And he's surveying life under the sun and telling us that there's no lasting meaning there. And if you remember, what's kind of the pattern he's been giving? He's been protecting us from these two ditches that we can fall in in life. And one of those is to find our worth in something, and the other one is to just, okay, if my worth's not in it, then I'll just walk away from it altogether and abandon it. And he say, no, we don't do either of those. So he opened the book talking about legacy and being remembered and how the world's just passing through like a machine and we're just the next generation being fed through the machine, soon to be forgotten. So he says, don't put your hope in being remembered. But he also says, don't just give up either. Don't just say, well, okay, if I can't be remembered, then I'll just do whatever I want. What does he say? He says, no, fear the Lord, and then pass on a faith worth remembering. Pass on good things to the generation coming after you. My grandson's grandson might not ever know my name, but I pray that he recognizes that his ancestors, his great-great-great-grandfather, Follow Jesus and love the Lord and taught his son to love the Lord and taught his son the gospel, who taught his son the gospel, who taught him the gospel. That yeah, I don't just give up. No, I fear the Lord and I pass on things worth remembering. And then he moves on to pleasures. And what does he say? Don't put your hope in pleasure. You're not gonna find it. Don't try to find your identity in anything under the sun that might give you pleasure. If it's you know great vacations or great status, great food, you name it being remembered, don't find your worth in any of those things, but he says you don't also have to abandon them either. Fear the Lord, find your worth in him, and then enjoy the pleasures of this life. Same thing with human wisdom. Don't put your hope, don't find your identity, don't try to find your worth and how wise you are. But he also says then don't just forsake wisdom and become a fool. What do we do? Fear the Lord and then live wisely, because living wisely is better And he goes through each topic. He goes through our work, right? Don't find your identity and your worth from your work because somebody's gonna have a job, the same job that you're working, somebody's gonna be working your job in 20, 30 years. It'll be somebody else. And when you part ways with your job, if it's where you find your worth, you'll part ways from your identity and your value and your worth. He says, don't put your worth in work, but also don't abandon work, right? Because you have nothing to eat. So what does he say? Fear the Lord and then work hard. Work as if, in light of the New Testament, work and do all things as if you're working for the Lord and not for men, Paul says. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. So go to work and work hard. Solomon says, keep one hand on your work, but then take a hand off your work and put a hand on rest. That we need to be people who leave work and spend time with our families, who honor the Lord with our time at work, but then we go home and we invest in our marriage. We get on the floor and play with our kids. We throw ball uh, play catch in the driveway, shoot ball in the driveway, all of those things. But keep a hand on work and honor the Lord with your work. Work existed before the fall. We were created to work. But as we said a couple weeks ago, we were not created for work. We were created to do it. But we weren't created for our work. We were created for Christ. And He's called us to honor Him with our work. So we fear the Lord and we go to work and we work well, we work with integrity. And we use our work as an evangelism opportunity to the people around us who don't fear the Lord. But do you see what he's doing? He's keeping us from these two ditches. Don't put your hope in this thing, but also don't completely abandon it. Um, Justice was the same way. We looked at all of the injustices under the sun. And he said, don't put your hope in human justice. Please don't. If you're rooting your worth and your value And your security in one day that the right leader is going to pass the right legislation that's just going to eliminate all injustice under the sun, you're never going to find it. Granted, some policies and leaders are better than others, but the human heart is wicked and no bill is ever going to be passed that cures the sin in my heart or in your heart. It's just not going to happen. So what do we do? We fear the Lord, but we don't abandon justice either. All of the scriptures call us to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly, to love what is just and to do what is just as believers. So we don't just abandon justice altogether. We fear the Lord. We don't put our hope in human justice, our hopes in the Lord's justice when he returns. But then we act justly and we live justly and we love things that are just and we do what's right. Does that make sense? He's talked about worship. He's talked about community and living in relationship with others. Last week, he talked about our wealth and Here's what I want you to see, that as we've gone through, and he said, don't put your hope in those things, they will not give you lasting joy. Fear the Lord, but then he says, enjoy those things. Enjoy the wealth he's given you. Enjoy the pleasures he's given you. Enjoy the relationships he's given you. Solomon has been faithful as we've gone through to give us multiple commands to enjoy the life that God has given us. Um, He said it last week in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 18 and 19. He said, hey, this is what's good. Behold, I've seen what is good. To be um, seen, to be good and fitting, is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Ecclesiastes 3, so I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for this is his lot who can bring him to see what will be after him. Hey, enjoy your work. Ecclesiastes 3, a couple verses earlier in verse 12, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Some of you are like, why are we going backwards? Why are you looking at all the commands to enjoy our life? Because what Solomon's gonna do in chapter six is he's going to talk about how sad it is for the man or the woman that doesn't enjoy their life. He's not gonna evaluate another thing under the sun. He's gonna say, here's a sad story. Here's a sad reality. This is what it looks like when you don't enjoy the life that God's given you. When you don't enjoy all that the Lord has given us in Christ. He's gonna stop and tell us just how sad of a reality it is. If we don't enjoy our lives and here's the key The key to I would argue the whole book um, one of the keys is found in ecclesiastes chapter 2 and we made a big deal about it when we got there But it's going to mean a whole lot as we interpret this passage today So I want to direct you before we start verse 1 of chapter 6 look at ecclesiastes 2 verse 24 Solomon gives us another command to enjoy it, but then he gives us a truth about our enjoyment. And it's going to be the key that we use to interpret, the key that we have been using to interpret this book, but especially this passage today. If you look at what he says in Ecclesiastes 2, 24, he says this, there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Remember, he's talking about your life down here. He's not talking about the next life. He's not talking about the eternal state. He's talking about how you spend your time on this earth. And then he says this. There's nothing better than you should eat and drink and find enjoyment. This also I saw is from the hand of God. And then verse 25 is the key. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Apart from Christ, you can have no enjoyment. If you're not first satisfied in Christ you're never going to be able to enjoy God's gifts. They might make you happy for a moment, but they will never provide the right satisfaction that the Lord has created them to give. Why? Because if I'm not satisfied in Christ, then I'm going to try to find full and lasting satisfaction in everything else. If you're not soul satisfied in Jesus, then you're going to go to your work and try to make it completely fulfill you and satisfy you and define you and who you are. You're going to go to your bank account for your security if you don't first have it in Christ. You're going to go to the pleasures of this world for your satisfaction if you don't have it in Christ. He says, apart from Jesus, you can't enjoy anything else the way that God meant for it to be enjoyed. God has given us great gifts, but they make very, very terrible gods, And what happens is when you take your job or you take your children and you try to let that thing satisfy you and give you your security and your hope and your worth, try making the success of your children where you find your worth. What will happen? You'll never find it. And two, you will crush them with the weight of your expectations on them. Anything that we try to find our hope and our identity and our worth in, we instantly crush with the weight of our desires. If you're trying to let your marriage be what fulfills you and satisfies the deepest longings of your soul, you will crush your marriage at the weight of the expectations that you put on your spouse. You will. It's when we are first satisfied in Christ, then I can look at my spouse as a gift from the Lord and I can enjoy my spouse for all that the Lord has meant for me to enjoy, but she doesn't have to complete me or fulfill me or validate me because I have all of that in Jesus. Does that make sense? So Solomon says, apart from him, you can't have any enjoyment because you will try to take every single thing under the sun and try to find your worth from it, your value from it, your security from it, your identity in it, and it will not satisfy. I mention this a lot, but teenagers, kids, you know this from playing sports, that if you're trying to find your worth from the sport that you play, you will crush yourself with the weight of the expectations that you put on how you're going to play this weekend. Because if I play great, then I'm somebody and I matter and I feel significant. But if I have a bad game, I have an off night, then I don't feel like I'm worth anything because this sport now determines my worth. And you know what's awesome about the gospel is when you find your hope in Christ, when you find your worth in Christ, you're now free to enjoy that thing for what it is. Kids, if you find your worth in Jesus and knowing Him, and that determines who you are and that you're loved and how much, how much value you have, you have infinite value if you're loved by Christ. If you know that your identity is secure when you go into the game this weekend, then it doesn't matter how you play. It might describe you for a couple days, but it doesn't define who you are. Jesus defines who I am. And if the game goes great, praise the Lord. If the game goes bad, there's another game coming. God is good but it doesn't change who I am. Does that make sense? And, you know, adults, we're just kids and teenagers that owe people money. Like, we, we deal with the same things. We do the same thing with our job. You will crush your job if you're looking to it to, to give you lasting joy. You will. It will never give it to you. And you will be a slave to your job and neglect other things that God has given you, your relationships especially. If your job is where you find your worth from, because it'll always make you come back for more. And Solomon says, hey, apart from Christ, you can't have any other enjoyment. And then he says this, verse 26, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. He says, hey, if you don't fear the Lord, if your sins aren't covered by the blood of Jesus, and you're spending your days under the sun just trying to satisfy your soul with things of this earth, he says, you are just gathering and collecting. Moving to one thing to try to fulfill me. Hey, that didn't work. I'll move to the next relationship. I'll move to the next job. I'll move to the next pleasure. I'll buy the next thing, the newest thing. You're just gathering and collecting, trying to find something that will give you lasting joy. And he says, you can't find it. And Solomon's going to describe how sad it is for that person in this chapter. So let's look at verse 1. He says this in Ecclesiastes 6, verse 1. He says, there's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. He says, hey, this is heavy on humanity. Solomon's looking out from his kingdom, looking at mankind, saying, hey, this is really prevalent. And I would argue it's just as prevalent in our day today. Remember, there's nothing new under the sun. It, You see the problem just as well in our day today. And he says, it's laid on thick. And he says this in verse two, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity and a grievous evil. Look at this man that he describes, a man who God has given wealth and possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. This man has all that he desires, but doesn't know how to enjoy them. Trying to find ultimate fulfillment from them instead of enjoying them as good gifts from the Lord. He has all these nice things, but he is empty in his soul. He's looking to his things to provide himself something that they cannot. This is the state of our world today. Our problem is not that we lack stuff right we have the opposite problem i don't complain to my wife about our lack of stuff here in america we complain that we have too much stuff like hey i can't fit the car in the garage hey we're paying for extra storage for all of our stuff hey i've got to walk up these stairs and my ankles keep popping all the time right in my big house i got to walk up like i have i have too big of a house I have too much square, and I'm not talking about me per se, like just come, come to the cabin and you'll see, but you, you see what I'm saying. We have too big of houses. We have too much square footage to clean and we gripe about it, right? I got to go up these stairs, up this stairwell and down the, the other stairwell on the back of the house. We got to clean all this stuff. We got to manage all this estate, right? We have the opposite problem. And Solomon says, hey, this man had everything, all that he desired, but he was not fulfilled at the soul level. And man, do we struggle with this. We've got too much stuff in the garage. We can't leave our work on time. You know, America's just, we're just a fascinating group of people. (laughs) Um, We're so trying to find our worth in what we do that we lead the world in coffee to get us going, and then we lead the world in liquor to put us down at night because we can't find ultimate rest and satisfaction in Christ. That just every day it's just more, more, more trying to satisfy my soul. Look out at the state of our nation. And what do you see? People just striving to find lasting worth and value in everything under the sun. And Solomon says, this is a grievous evil. This is sad that these people are not satisfied. He says this, if a man follows 100 children, Now, he's starting to speak in hyperbole here. Don't go try this, all right? This isn't prescriptive. But he says If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Now, I wanna be clear and I wanna be very careful with this. Um, And I want you to be comforted too that Solomon's not just throwing this word around to be crass. I know this topic, especially with miscarriages and stillborn and all that stuff, is a very weighty topic. And we can see that Solomon's not just throwing it out there for shock value, which so many preachers love to just, you know, drop some hot button heavy words for shock value. Solomon's not doing that. Um, And you'll see because he actually gives us the reason why he says this in verses four and five. You see the word four there that starts verse four in your Bible? He's going to give us the reason why he chose these words. But I just want you to, I want you to be clear, um, and I want you to know he's not just throwing around words to upset people, to be um, careless with his words. Um, he's going to give us the reasoning. But before we look at the reasoning, um, I want us to look at what he says. Um, but he says, if a man lives a long time and has a ton of children but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he has no burial. Solomon says, how sad is it for a man to have so many years and not be satisfied at the soul level for you to live 60, 70, 80 years of this life and never be truly satisfied, to never truly have rest for your soul, to spend The gift that God's given you, the 60, 70, 80 years, if the Lord is gracious to each of us, to spend that many years gathering and collecting, but never having soul-level rest. He says that's a sad deal. It's a sad deal. And here's what I want you to see. Parents, if your children learn all that this world has to teach them, all that the universities have to teach them, all that pilot school has to teach them, all that earthly wisdom has to teach them, but they don't learn this, they will be miserable in whatever they do. That if our children go off and do great things under the sun and make lots of money under the sun and have big houses and nice cars and secure bank accounts, but they don't know this, we will be no different from the man that Solomon's talking about. But if your children only learn this, then they'll find joy and be happy in whatever career they go off and do. If they don't know this, they'll never find lasting joy. We have to know this, and we have to understand this. Because if, I, I feel like if I looked at our calendar and many of our calendars, and looked at how we spend our money, Our lives would essentially say, yeah, no, I'm gonna make sure that they have a great job and that they are an engineer or a teacher or a pilot or whatever, and yeah, I hope they follow Jesus. I hope they learn about that at youth group when I drop them off. Instead, Solomon's saying, no, 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 the the goal of parenting is I'm gonna do everything I can to make sure my child understands the word of God and the work of God. Now, we can't save our children. We can make sure they understand the gospel and they hear it in our homes. And I hope they find a great career. And the good news about the gospel is we don't have to choose between the two. But Jesus does tell us you can't serve two masters, that you're gonna serve one. And so many of us serve the master of I just want my child to be a functioning, good member of society and make some money and be secure. And yeah, I hope they follow Jesus along the way. And Solomon says, no, 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 no. Root your worth, root your identity in the Lord. He says, it's a sad thing for someone to get all this world has to offer, but they don't have soul level satisfaction and rest. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, but forfeit his soul? There is no profit. Um, I was talking with a, a parent of a student one time, and he's long gone, Names are irrelevant for this story, um, but this student was wrestling with a call to ministry, and uh, I got a call from the dad, and he's like, "Hey, can we talk?" And uh, essentially, the goal of our meeting was for the dad to come tell me, like, "Hey, I need you to tell my son that he needs to go to college and get a degree, and if he wants to be in ministry, it's always a great plan to fall back on if you know achieving all that the world has to offer doesn't work out." And I got to sit down with the man in love and say, hey, um, I'm not saying he's gonna be a minister or not, but I wouldn't quench that flame. God's sovereign, he can lead your son, he's going to lead your son wherever, but if your son doesn't know this, and maybe it's a call to ministry, maybe it's just a love for the word of God at his age, which, praise the Lord, that's not super common, but if you start quenching this and get your son's eyes on the things that this world has to offer, he says, "He'll he'll never be happy, He'll never find joy. He might have a big house and a nice car and fancy stuff, but he'll be empty in his soul. I said, or you can continue to fan that flame and trust him with the Lord. Trust him to the Lord and God's sovereign. But keep pointing your son to the scriptures. Use this moment to let him trust God with his future and his career choices and those kind of things. But essentially the, the, the mood of the meeting. Was, hey, keep my kids' eyes focused on the world. And ministry is a great second option. And like I said, ministry is here nor there. I'll be really honest with you about all that ministry is and is not. Um, and if the Lord's calling you, you won't be able to ignore it. But the, the point was, dad, your son is really wrestling with hearing the Lord and walking with Him and, and just literally filtering the decisions of his life through His Word. Don't quench that. Fan that flame. And mothers and fathers, we need to be people who fan that flame in our own children as well. Scripture is very clear that if we anchor our lives in this word, we will find life. Proverbs 8, verse 34 and 35, or I think it's 35 and 36, says, For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Did I put those wrong? Yep, there's 30, um, 35. Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. John 10, verse 10. Thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come so that they may have what? Life, and have it more abundantly. Romans 6. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus said, he who seeks to find his life here under the sun is gonna lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake and my glory and knowing me, you'll find it. That's what we were created for. Solomon doubles down in verse three. He says, uh, well, we're, we're looking at verse three. I, w- I wanna address the end of verse three for a second. He says, if a man fathers 100 children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. And he also has no burial. He says, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. So what does he mean by that? Look at verse four. He's talking about the child. He says, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness. And in darkness, its name is covered. Moreover, it's not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Solomon says, it's better off for that child who never saw the earth than for that man. And I want you to hear how strong of a comparison and how strong his language is. It's better for that child than it is better for the man to live a hundred years of his life and have a hundred children and never find satisfaction in the Lord. He says it's better for that child. Why? Because the child is shown compassion and kindness and is not open to public shame and is remembered. He says, but the man who lived a life out under the sun, chasing everything that he could and never find soul satisfaction, he says, it is better for that child than for someone to live 100 years and realize they played the fool. It says, we look at the child with compassion and with tears and with so much love and emotion. We look at the man with shame and embarrassment because he lived a hundred years getting all that this world has to offer and it never satisfied his soul. It is better off, Solomon says, to not, um, having, not have lived a moment on this earth than to live a hundred years on this earth and realize as you die that you played the fool. Do you see how strong of language he's using there? but I wanna be really careful with it. He says, the baby got to escape the pain and the restlessness at the soul level. He got to escape all that and instantly finds rest and love and comfort in the arms of the Lord. Yet the man lives 100 years, has 100 children, theoretically, and never finds soul level rest. Then he says this in verse six. Even though he should live a 1,000 years twice over, yet enjoy no good, Do not all go to the one place. So look at what Solomon, he started with 100 kids and now he's at 100 years and now he's at 1,000 years. Do you see the progression there? And he's making a point. He's talking about quality of life, not quantity of life. He says the quality of your life is so much better than the quantity. It's better to live a short life with joy in the Lord than to live 1,000 years without it. It's better to live... Ten years on this earth with joy and being satisfied in Christ. And who's made you? You were made to know him. John 17, this is eternal life that you know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. It's better to live a short life knowing Christ than living a thousand years without him. Do you see what he's doing here? And our history is filled with so many believers who died young. But man, did they die well. And they died with their joy in the Lord. David Brainerd, a missionary to the Indians, died at 29. Robert Murray McShane, a minister at the Church of Scotland, died at 29. Oswald Chambers died at 43. Diedrich Bonhoeffer died at 39. Jim Elliott, a missionary to the Waorani tribe, died at 29. Was speared to death. taking the gospel to a people that have never heard the good news of Jesus before died running full speed after knowing Christ and making him known. 29 years short, all he was given, but he knew Christ and he died well. Solomon says that's infinitely better than living a 1,000 years not knowing Christ and spending your time on earth gathering and collecting. William Tyndale died at 42 years old. William Tyndale was the first person to translate the Bible into the English language. He translated it from Latin and all the other languages that the Roman Catholic Church was using to kind of keep from the people so that only the the clergy could, could use the scriptures to kind of control the people. William Tyndale translated the Bible into English and was smuggling it into England. Was caught, was tried, was convicted, and was executed for translating the Bible into English so that common folks like you and me could know Christ by faith. And as they hung him, his last words were, God opened the eyes of the king of England. God opened his eyes so that he could see that your grace was for all. Come behold this wondrous mystery that Christ came not just for the Jews, but for all the world, for the Gentiles. And you don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. It's by faith in Christ. 42 years old, died well. Solomon says it's better to live a short life The illustration previously, it's better to not live a second on the earth than to live a thousand years not knowing Christ. Do you know him this morning? The invitation is free to forsake your striving and to come bring your sin to the cross of Christ. And you'll find forgiveness by his blood. And then he says this, do not all go to one place. Now I want you to see Solomon wasn't theologically mistaken. He's talking about life under the sun. He's asking this rhetorical question that under the sun, all of our lives go to one place, right? They go in the ground. All of us go in the ground. Some of the boxes that we go in are nicer than others. Some of us don't make it in the box, all those kind of things. I'm not going to get into details, but we all go to the same place under the sun. But our souls do not all go to the same place. That every single one of us We'll stand before our maker. Every knee's gonna bow and every tongue's gonna confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the the invitation of the gospel is that you would do that before you meet him. Because when you meet him, it will be too late. While Christ may be found, as the prophet Jeremiah says, come and buy without price. The invitation is free. There's living water available. And the only requirement is you have to be hungry and you have to be thirsty for a righteousness that you can't ever attain on your own by faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says this, verse seven, all the toil of man is for his mouth. I love this, by the way. If you're looking for a verse to memorize just for fun this week, I would encourage you to memorize this verse. Solomon says that all of our striving, all of our working is to fill the pie hole in our face, right? And if you think about it, that's really what we're doing. He says all of our toil, all of our striving is for our mouth. But he says his appetite is never satisfied. But that's really it. All of our work is just trying to find a meal every six hours. And if you think about it, everything else is just details. All the other stuff is just details. It really is. Everything else is just comfort. Some of us cook those meals. Others have them cooked for them. Some eat their meals in 600 square feet. Some eat their meals in 6,000 square feet. Some eat $80 fillets and some eat $8 fillets. Some are eating risotto and some are eating ramen, right? Some eat with plastic and some eat with fine china. But do you see the point he's making? That we are all just toiling and striving for the next meal, And some of us are doing that with more luxury and more scenery than others. And some of us are getting by. But he says that's essentially all of our striving. That's it. Essentially, he's arguing the only money can do is make you prolong your life a little bit more. But then death's going to get all of us. The great avenger, as a lot of theologians call it, death. Then he says this, verse 8. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? He says, the wise man has no advantage over the fool if we're all just trying to get our next meal. We all just need food to survive. But whether you're wise or foolish, we all eventually end up in the same place. You may be wise and have more stuff, which is a lot of us in America. But at the end of the day, we have no advantage. The only way to lasting joy and lasting enjoyment in this life is finding our joy in the Lord. It's the only way. And man, along the way, some of us try so hard to make other people think that we've got it going on, right? We've got our work car, but then if we're going to an event, we got to drive this car to make sure that other people see us in that car. And we got to drive and we got to wear these clothes to make sure that people see that we have, you know, the status that goes along with the money in the bank or the money we don't have in the bank. We want people to think we have in the bank. But he says there's no advantage from the wise over the fool that we're all just trying to get our next meal and we're all going to the same place. You'll never find lasting joy under the sun. Verse nine, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. Solomon says it's better to enjoy what you have. It is better to keep your eyes fixed on what you've got. Fear the Lord and enjoy what he's given you. Enjoy the lot that he's given you. The relationships, the family, the job, the possessions. Fear him and enjoy it. It's better. Better is the sight of the eyes Then the wandering of the appetite says that's also vanity and striving after the wind. Solomon says, enjoy what you have. Don't sit around and dwell on what you don't have. It's better to have eyes that are able to see that that next thing won't satisfy me. As we grow in our dependence on the gospel and our security in the gospel, I pray that this is a mark of spiritual maturity. That as the next wave of culture comes through, the next you know, new fad shows up, the next device you have to go and buy, that we go, oh wow, that's neat. That's really cool. But that's not gonna satisfy me. That as we look around at what our neighbors have, we praise the Lord that he's blessed them with those things. But they're just as broken and sinful as I am and that thing's not gonna satisfy their soul. So why would I believe that their thing's gonna satisfy mine? But man, do we get into this game. Where we start to look around horizontally at the things that God has blessed other people with. And we start to believe the lie that they're satisfied in those things. All of us in here that have things, are you satisfied in those things? Not for a second. Yeah, they're fun. Yeah, they're good gifts from the Lord. But they'll never give me the joy that my soul longs for. They'll never give me security and hope and worth and value. They provide a couple memories. But that's about it. Solomon says it's better to keep your eyes fixed on what you have and to have eyes that can see that none of these other things are going to satisfy. Don't listen to the wandering appetites. That Christ is enough whether you're in the penthouse or the pig pen. It doesn't matter where you come from. The Father welcomes us all home and gives us lasting joy in Christ. And then he says this in verse 10. Because this is our temptation and I want to take it seriously. He says in verse 10, whatever has come to be has already been named. He's reminding us of God's sovereignty yet again. Hey, as you're tempted to look around at other people's lives and what they have and what you don't have, he says, remember that whatever has come to be has already been named by someone much stronger and much more powerful than you. And he, we should take comfort in that. There was a quote, I forget who said it, it was shared uh, to me recently. Um, but it essentially said that every circumstance that comes into your life and comes into your eyes has first passed God's eyes. That all of your circumstances have come from him. That he's seen them first. And the fact that it's in your life, you can trust that it comes from a good God. And it doesn't mean that circumstance is gonna be easy. It doesn't mean it's gonna be great. But we can trust that before it's seen our eyes, it's seen his. And the God who loves us sends it our way. But he says, whatever's come has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Solomon reminds us that every detail of our lives comes from a sovereign God. There is no sense arguing with him. There is no sense in you arguing with someone stronger than you. Isaiah 55 says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways, and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. So Solomon says, there's no sense in arguing with God about your circumstances. Now, what does Scripture do tell us to do? Not to argue with God about him, but to pray, to confide in him, to take our cares to him, to take our struggles to him, to take our suffering to him. He cares for us, and he wants those things. But don't have the wandering eye, the wandering appetite, thinking that a different circumstance, a different thing in the garage, a change in scenery would satisfy. He says, it will not God gives us all of our circumstances to show us that only he can satisfy our souls. This is why he gives us everything to show us that he's the one we were made for. And I don't mean that carelessly. I I mean it. As I minister to you and our staff ministers to you, some of you are walking through heavy stuff, like unbearable pain that only the Lord can carry with you. Some of you are walking through really heavy stuff, and Solomon doesn't just throw this out carelessly and say, hey, just blindly accept it. And be quiet and take what the Lord's given you. No. Take it to the Lord. Pray. Invite the church around you to pray with you and carry these things with you. To, to, to carry each other's burdens, as Paul says in Galatians 6. And in this way we fulfill the law of Christ. Bring the people around you. But all of it our suffering and our blessings are given from God so that we can see that only he can satisfy our souls. John Piper has this quote, and then we'll wrap up. Um, He says this, um, and I love this quote. He says, occasionally weep deeply over the life that you hoped would be. And he means that. Occasionally weep deeply over the life that you hoped would be. All of us had an idea of the life that we hoped we would have. He says, occasionally weep deeply over that. Grieve the losses, feel the pain." But then he says this, then wash your face, trust God, and embrace the life that he's given you. That we can know that every single circumstance God has given us is because he loves us and he wants us to know him and depend on him even more so that he would get the glory in our lives. God is always, God's strength is always revealed in human weakness, not in human achievement. That the Holy Spirit always shines brightly when men admit and women admit their weakness and their need for God. That's when he is made strong, when his strength is proven to be strong, as Paul writes in Corinthians. Then he says this, "The more words, the more vanity, and what is advantage to man? He's calling back to what he's already said, that the scribes and the Pharisees often thought that they were heard by their many words. He says, "No, just be honest with the Lord and what you're walking through." And then he says this in verse 12, for who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow, for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And here's where we'll close. Solomon asked this rhetorical question, but it's actually a really good question. Who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life? So many of us think we know what's best for us, that if we got to write the story of our lives, that we would know how to do it well. Ask your children if they know what's best for them. I guarantee you, they think they do, right? So many of us think we do. But you want to know the theological answer for who knows what's best for a man? Your heavenly father. Solomon meant it rhetorical, but there is a theological answer. That there is someone who knows what's best for you. And the gospel, as we close, as Paul tells us in Romans 8, that we can know, we can trust, we can bank on the fact. That God works all things, our suffering and our blessings, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So the question is, what's our ultimate good? Because some of you are like, I'm looking at my circumstances and it doesn't feel good. And that's why we have to have God's definition of good. Romans 8, verse 29, the very next verse. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Solomon's telling us, hey, our greatest good is not better circumstances. Your greatest good is not more money in the bank. If I had all the money that I would have given myself if I was sovereign over my life, I wouldn't fear the Lord at all. Solomon says, hey, your greatest good is not more wealth, not more health, not more prosperity. The greatest good is that your life would look like Jesus, that you would know the one who created you, And you would dwell with him and have an intimate relationship with him. That's your greatest good. And God's working all things so that you would be made, your life and your soul would look more like Christ. That's why he's working all things. So, what's the application? Fear the Lord. Jesus Christ is where true and lasting worth can only be found. Fear the Lord. And in light of the rest of the book, work hard and rest well and provide for your family and go home and watch a good movie and enjoy a good book, all in your awe and reverence to the Lord. Fear the Lord and enjoy the life that he's given you. Because Solomon says, it's fleeting. Your days are short. Your time is really short. So fear the Lord with all that you have and enjoy the pleasures that he's given you. Know the truth. Read your word. Spend time with the Father, play with your kids, invest in your marriage, and enjoy this life that God has given you. But you'll never enjoy it unless you fear Him. And you put your worth, you find your worth and your value and your identity and your security in Christ, amen? Let's praise God for what He has given us in His Son. Father, as we close, God, Solomon is yet to give us, or He has given us, another reminder. God, that we cannot, how sad it is for us to find our worth in anything under the sun. God, we're grateful that your son has come to show us our ultimate worth is in knowing Christ. God, Paul says in Philippians that he counts all things as loss except for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ His Lord. So God, I pray for the people in here. God, someone in here that walked into this room today, God, trying to find their worth in things. Maybe trying to find their worth in their worship today. Trying to find their worth in a religious deed offered to you. God, I pray that we would all rejoice and that our ultimate worth doesn't come from anything we could ever do, but it comes from what you've done. God, you've given us lasting joy in Christ. And if there's anyone in here that does not have that, God, I pray that you would convict them so strongly that they would not leave until they talk to someone about how to find their worth in Christ, in the gospel. But God, for those of us that have, we thank you that you've revealed your son to us. God, none of that was by our own strength. It was all by your mercy. So, God, we worship you as people ransomed by you, with our identity and our worth secure in Christ. So, God, help us to lift our hands and to worship you for all that you are. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and respond as we close.